verse number 7, Hebrews chapter 11, and verse number 7. What a great day, what a great night to be with God's men, around God's word, to open up this book. Powerful, powerful message tonight by that great connection with that salt to Sodom, how critical it is that one way or another there was going to be salt in Sodom, one way or the other. It just depends where we want the salt, doesn't it? Powerful, powerful. Thank you so much, Brother Hardy. If you're able physically, let me invite you to stand with me tonight as we read from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 7. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark of the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Father, I pray that your words again would speak to us tonight. We're desperately in need of the Bible there's a famine in the land, certainly not a famine of bread nor a thirst of water, but a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord. And so tonight, may we have ears that are ready to hear. And, and Lord, I pray that the word of God would be powerful and impactful. And even as we've already heard tonight, Lord, may we present our lives to the will of God. Yes. To have a life that matters, a life that counts for Christ. We ask it in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. When the Bible says in Hebrews 11, verse number 7, that Noah was warned of God, that word warned was often used in New Testament times in the business community. And I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but that seems awfully appropriate, doesn't it? Because when it comes to the judgment of God, well, one thing we know from the Bible, and we've heard earlier tonight from Sodom, that God's judgment, he means business. You know the story, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that was only the half of it, wasn't it? It wasn't just that men were sinning with their hands and sinning with their feet and sinning with their tongues and sinning with their eyes and ears. But the Bible tells us that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And that really is where the sewage comes, doesn't it? In the entire story of Genesis 6 and 7. So it's not just people that are engaged in sin, but in those moments in time where men were not actually sinning with their hands or their eyes or their tongue... In their minds, they were imagining new deaths to which they could go. They were imagining new sins, inventing new sins in their thinking against Almighty God. And the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And there was no hope. There was no direction. But there's that little word, but again. And in Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 8, well, kind of like a lighthouse shining off the coast of Washington State, there was one man that made the difference. Yeah. One man that chose to walk with God. And the Bible says, but Noah found grace. Yeah, hey, let me say, that matters. You will notice the Bible does not say Noah bought grace. You will notice the Bible does not say that Noah earned grace. Because Bible salvation, well, it is not for sale, nor can salvation be obtained by the good works of men. The Bible tells us that Noah found grace. And gentlemen, tonight, a man in this building who wants eternal life has got to go to the cross of Calvary and find grace at the feet of Jesus. Now, one person in this room has got enough money to say, I can buy a minute in heaven. Not one person in this building tonight has enough goodness to earn a home in heaven. Noah found grace like you and I need to find, find grace. The Bible tells us that when the wickedness of man was great in the earth, Noah found grace, and you know the story. God said, and it's an interesting, a man like Abraham, friend to friend, God would talk to him. And now with the judgment ready to come in Genesis chapter 7, God came and spoke with Noah. And God said, Noah, it's time for you to build the ark. So for 120 years, and I'm pretty certain it didn't take a whole 120 years to put it together, but it did take 120 years for the whole project. And to gather everything, to make preparations, an old man starts working on that ark. For 120 years, a man of faith believes God. And yet the Bible says in Hebrews 11 that he was warned of God of something he had never seen as yet. Can you imagine what that must have been like when, when the local news channel sent down some journalist woman to give an interview? Uh, and, and you said, well, come on, they didn't have TV stations back then. Are you sure about that? 
Because nobody knows what it was like before the flood. There is no record to tell you the truth. And you get the idea from Genesis 4, there was a lot of advance and maybe a lot of technological advance. And I guess I can't stand up here and say for sure they did have TV back then, but I know as well you can't sit there and say for sure they didn't. If they did have TV news channels back then, they all would have been liberals. I'm pretty sure about that. <laughs> And so I can see the little CNN journalette as she gets down there and she's going to give a little expose on Noah and this great project. And you can just imagine what it's like. First, with that sneer on her face, she brings in the geologist from the university. And the esteemed geologist says, you know, we don't know where Noah gets his geology from. The fountains of the deep exploding. What are these fountains of the deep? There's not a geologist in the university that believes there are these so-called fountains of the deep. We don't, know, uh, we don't know where he got his geology from, but he doesn't have one of our degrees. And, and you can see the journalist with that sneer on her face thank the geologist. And back she goes to the station to interview the meteorologist. I don't know about you, but I'm not a fan of meteorologists. <laughs> I'm really not. All it takes is a hurricane in, say, Florida to realize how dumb these people are. <laughs> no, for me, I, like, I, what, I, maybe they didn't have the benefit that I did, but I had this thing called a mother. And my mother taught me when it rains, you go inside. <laughs> so you don't stand out there in a hurricane because you're so special. We know what wind is like, and especially around here, you know what water is like. We really don't need this, you know. And, and these people said to me, they're not so smart. And maybe you're impressed by this, but uh, it doesn't impress me when somebody on the Channel 5 News at night says, tomorrow in Seattle, there is a 50% chance of rain. <laughs> there you go. It may or it may not rain. <laughs> Really, I didn't need that. <laughs> so these people aren't really, you know, my top of the list uh, respected crowd, I guess. But oh, I can imagine, you know, this little journalist now for CNN, she's going back to the station. And after all, there's this 24-year-old meteorologist, and he just graduated from school. And, and you can see the sneer on this know-it-all, because he's got a degree in his pocket from the university. And he just kind of sneers and laughs and says, rain, water, come down from the sky. The water has never come down from the sky. Good. And what is this water coming down from the sky? The water can't come down from the sky. And, and uh, the Bible says he was warned of that it never rained. Yeah, right. He said, now how could that be? I'd love to get into that with just a little short of time, so I'm going to let, uh, I'm gonna let Brother House handle this. Yeah. <laughs> it never rained. Right. And you see the meteorologist laughing and saying, water? You can be sure that water up there is not coming down. Nothing to worry about. Back we go to the sneer of the little journalette, and she's got the geologist on her side and the meteorologist on her side. Of course, she's just getting warmed up, and, and now in this expose on 60 Minutes, she's going to bring in the coup de grace. Stepping to the mic is the minister from the ministerial. <laughs> and the head reverend of Mesopotamia has that little <laughs> smile on his face, his super spiritual attitude, and I can hear him as he gets the vibrato in his voice. <clears throat> well, now, the reverends all agree that God is a God of love, and a God of love would never destroy the earth that he had made. And we don't know where Noah gets his theology from, but it must be where he got his geology from and his theology <laughs> from. And, or in other words, I know where Noah didn't get it from. He didn't get his theology from the liberal seminary, and he didn't get anything else from that crowd. Amen. He got it from Almighty God. And now you can almost hear as they sneer and they laugh and they taunt and they mock because the Bible tells us God warned Noah of something nobody had ever seen. Hey, maybe not even knew about the fountains of the deep. I Certainly they have never seen water come down from the sky. And now the Bible tells us God came and said, Noah, there's a job to do. And if it wasn't a hundred 20 years of putting that thing together it was 120 years of burden and 120 years of prayer and 120 years of preparation and by the way building the thing was not his primary job his primary job was to be a preacher of righteousness he was warned of God of things but you know this is why Hebrews 11 is such a critical chapter in the Bible then we talk about commentaries, which are books that preachers have written or scholars have written about the Bible. And, and they certainly do have their place. But here's the thing. 
The greatest commentary on the Old Testament would be the Bible itself. And the greatest commentary would probably, if you want one chapter, is Hebrews 11. I mean, there are stunning things here we would never know. Let me give you, for example, I mean, we heard uh, mentioned briefly tonight from Genesis 22, how Abraham and Isaac went up Mount Moriah in that classic text. We're going up in the plural verb. We're coming back. Never a question. Never a doubt. But you know, if it weren't for Hebrews 11, we would never know the secret. And he Hebrews 11, it tells us that Abram went up to that mountain to offer his son, and it wasn't like he had read Genesis 22 and knew how it turned out. <laughs> the Bible says he full well expected to plunge that knife in the heart of his son, but a few verses later it says he believed that God was going to raise his son from the dead. You wouldn't find that in the Old Testament. And you know, when it comes to the story of Noah, in that one little tiny verse called Hebrews 11, verse number 7, there's a most impressive thing that you'll never find in the Old Testament. You'll never find it in Genesis 6 and Genesis 7. But what you find in Hebrews 11, verse number 7, is the reason or the motivation that Noah built the ark. Now, you see, tonight, if you were to ask the average person, you don't even have to be a member of a Baptist church. I mean, this is so easy that even people in, in, in compromising church, forget that. I mean, this is something that everybody knows. You just go to Seattle, and even in Seattle, they haven't figured out. But if you ask the average person out there, what did Noah do? I mean, everybody knows. They're going to look at you and say, well, Noah, that's the guy who built the ark. I mean... Even Hollywood made a movie about it, I believe. That's how desperate this is. And everybody would at you. What did Noah do? And it looked like at you. Come on, you mean you don't know? Everybody knows that Noah built an ark. And if you were to ask the average Sunday school student, what did Noah do? Noah built an ark. And if you ask the average person on the street in Portland, what did Noah do? Well, Portland. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason they call that the weird city, isn't it? I mean, look, there's weird people in every city, but that's the only one where they're proud of it. <laughs> Come on, praise. Hey, Hillsboro, I know Hillsboro ain't Portland, and you know it ain't Portland, too, so we're all good. <laughs> but you can go downtown Olympia even and ask them, what's going on, and what did Noah do? And everybody will tell you Noah built the ark. Everybody in the world says Noah built the ark. However, if somehow we could bring Noah back through time and eternity and stand them here tonight and say, Noah, what did you do? You know, Noah wouldn't answer like that. Because that's not why Noah was there. You say, you mean Noah didn't build an ark? Oh, he built a boat, but that's not what he would. He wasn't there to get famous. He wasn't there so Hollywood would make a movie about him. You know what Noah was doing? It's right there in Hebrews 11, 7. And you got to have this verse in the Bible or you wouldn't know. Look at it again. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. And here it is. Here is what he was doing. The Bible says he prepared an ark. To the saving of his house. Amen. Now if you ask the average person. What did Noah do? They'll look at you like you don't know anything. Everybody knows Noah built an ark. But if somehow we could go back through time and eternity. And, and we could say hey Noah. Come on man Noah. 4,500 years we'd have to go back. Hey Noah. If we could stand there and say. What are you doing with all this wood? And what are you doing with this great project? And what are you doing here Noah? You know Noah wouldn't look at you and me. And say I'm building an ark. So they make a movie about me. Yeah. Or I'm building an ark so one day they have these blue books in the dentist's office that will tell kids about me. <laughs> he says, and that's not what I'm doing. Well, Noah, you know, what are you doing? You know what Noah tells us? Yeah. I'm saving my family. Yeah. Amen. You see, everybody thinks Noah built an ark. That had nothing to do with it. The Bible tells us Noah was there for the saving of his house. Noah would tell us, I've got one wife, I've got three sons, and I've got three daughters-in-law. And more than anything else, I've got to save my family. The judgment of God is going to come. I've got to save my family. That kind of the burden that Abraham had over Sodom, isn't it? That's why he was praying. And he may have started with 50 righteous, and well, he did. But you know, when he got down to 10, that pretty much should have been his own family. Yeah. i got to save my family. And the only way to save my family when that water comes down from the sky and the only way to save my family when the fountains of the deep explode is for me to have an ark for them to go on. And while everybody thinks Noah built an ark and everybody will tell you Noah built an ark and Hollywood will claim that Noah built the ark, the truth of the matter is that is not what Noah was doing. Noah was not looking for a ticket to popularity. That day Noah said, I've got to save my family. You know, I can imagine the alarm clock going off like in year 71. Hell, Noah 
know, you know, and I don't know. I've heard the rumor that when you're pushing 600, the arthritis kicks in. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I got to believe there were plenty of days when that old alarm clock kicked off and Noah said, the last thing I feel like doing right now is crawling out of this bed and working on that boat. <laughs> and I'm sure if Eric, his wife were a human, in which she must have been, there must have been plenty of time where she you know, said, can't we just take off for three days? And how many times you think, oh, no, in the cold, cold times, in the hard, hot desert days of the summer, how many times you think, no, I said, the last thing I want to do is build this boat. The last thing I want to do is go out there and labor at this thing. And for 120 long years, there was Noah working. There was Noah laboring. But the thing that got him out of bed in the morning, the thing that kept him pressing towards the mark, the one thing that kept running through his heart and running through his soul, there was only one hope for my wife. There was only one hope for my boy. There is only one hope for my daughters in law. Noah said, I've got to save my family. By the way, I know there's a few teenagers here, and not too many, but there's some. Would you hear me very carefully for something? I'm guessing that when Mrs. Noah was like 495 years old and they hadn't had any children yet, once you hit 490, you're probably thinking it's not happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, but I'm just guessing, you know. 498 when they had their first child. Wow. First, you ever kidding? 498. And yet that's powerful, isn't it? Because you understand when a 500-year-old man is starting to work on a project like that, he's going to need some help. And what he really needs are a few young backs. And what he really needs are some strong young men. And then fascinating, the Lord waited that long to give three sons to Noah. So there would be three sons to do a job that God needed that family to do. And what that means is that if you're a teenager, you're not in your home by accident. And God didn't put you with your daddy and your mother by mistake. And you need to understand that as much as it's the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God for your pastor to preach, for a missionary go to the mission field, it is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God that you are in the family that God put you in. Amen. Amen. Just like Shem, Ham, and Japheth, you've got a special job to do for God. Amen. What are you doing, Noah? Building a boat. Noah Moses, no. No, 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 no. You heard I built a boat. You thought I built a boat, but I am not here to build a boat. Well, Noah, if you're not here to build an ark, what are you doing? And old Noah says, I'm here to save my family. Amen. And so tonight, Mr. Noah, we're 4,500 years later, and we're quite a few miles away. But you know, Noah, like never before, like never before, there is a big old bullseye planted right on the back of the Christian home. Why, we are living in a day where not only our country, but this entire world is no friend to a godly family. And everywhere we look, there is an attack against the Christian home. I, our, our world hates Christian marriages. Our world hates parents that teach their children righteousness. Everything about our culture, everything about our world stands 180 degrees against the Christian home. I know it. we need some help down here at this men's retreat tonight. Because like never before in our years, in our country, there was such an assault against the Christian family. And an attack against the Christian family. Hey, Noah, do you have some help for how did you save your family? Can you help us save our family tonight? Being a good preacher of righteousness, good old Noah puts it in a real nice outline. So if you went from Hebrews 11, verse number 7, I'd like you to listen to an old preacher of righteousness from the top of a monstrosity that humans call Noah's Ark. And this old preacher said, I am not here to build an ark. I'm here to save my family. And tonight, if a dad, if a granddaddy wants to save his family, I know it says there's five lessons I learned. Let me give them to you from the Bible tonight. You want to save your family. You want to save your family. Notice it starts in verse number 7 with the words, by faith, Noah. And it's not the only verse in Hebrews 11 that starts that way, does it? In fact, it really is stunning. I mean, it's almost like faith with an exclamation point. And every one of these men and every one of these ladies whose lives counted, every one of their stories that stands the test of time, oh, they lived in different eras, and they certainly did different things. And it, it could cover the gamut from Rahab the harlot right up to that great friend of God, Abraham. But you know, no matter when they lived, no matter who they were, there was one thing that tied all these mighty men and ladies together. Every one of them lived by faith. By faith is a beautiful thing. And if I were to stand here tonight and say, we ought to live by faith, you'd say amen to that. And we might even one of these days sing something like, I don't know, faith is the victory. You think? 
So you know you're supposed to live by faith, and I know I'm supposed to live by faith. What exactly does that mean? <laughs> and you know, faith is one of those words in the Bible. We kind of know it when we see it. And we know what it means, but we really don't know how to define it. And that's a shame because the Bible tells us exactly how to define it. You see, the problem is, and Satan is a master at this. And that's why we, there's so many battles. And one of the battles we've got is a battle over the words of the Bible. Because you understand, Satan is a master. And he doesn't mind the words in the Bible if he gets to write the dictionary. You know, in the last 15 or 20 years, right in front of our eyes, right in front of our eyes, we have watched Satan and his people in Washington, D.C. corrupt one of the strongest words in the Bible and change its meaning. And it's this word, faith. See, when I was a little kid growing up in the Northeast and we go out at recess, frequently the subject of religion would come up. And the question was always phrased like that. What's your religion? Well, where I grew up in the Northeast, most kids would say, I'm Catholic. And if you weren't Catholic, then, you know, there are a few kids who would say, I'm Jewish. And if you weren't Catholic or Jewish, then the rest were supposed to say, I'm Protestant. Of course, that's not us. No, no. None of the above. Independent Baptist. But you understand, that's how the thing was framed. And when the question was asked, it was always, what's your religion? You'll never hear that anymore. Fifteen years ago, Satan's crowd in Washington, D.C. corrupted a Bible word, and they did it with a term called faith-based initiatives. And what we saw was an assault against the Bible word so that now people will never say, what is your religion? Instead, they say, what is your faith? And when people hear the word faith, it is a synonym for religion. But faith and religion are not the same thing. They have never been the same thing, and they never will be the same thing. And yet, for most people tonight, Satan has corrupted that word in a very subtle way. And now when people hear the word faith, they say, oh, yeah, Baptist faith, Catholic faith, Muslim faith, it's all the same. That's not the word faith. Faith is not religion. Faith is not mystical. Faith is not an experience. Say, well, what is faith? Well, this is easy. Right there in Hebrews 11, verse number one. Mm -hmm. Faith is, we're going to get a definition here, aren't we? Mm -hmm. The Bible says faith is the substance. Stop. Substance. You can hold a substance in your hand. You can see a substance with your eyes. So there is a substance that I can touch, that I can feel, that you can see. There is a substance, notice what it is now, the substance of things hoped for. Hold it again. Alright, so the Bible says there is something I can hold in my hands that is going to tell me about the things that I am hoping for. Let me stop there for a second because you know... The word hope in the Bible means something differently than it does for us. See, when we use the word hope, we say, I hope so, I hope so, I hope so, I hope so, I hope so. I know it's never going to happen in my life, but I hope so, I hope so, and I know it won't happen, but I hope, I hope. You know what I mean? If you go to the dictionary and look up the word hope, it says, Seattle Mariners baseball. (laughs) (laughs) Just sorry, but it ain't happening. your lifetime, not your kid's lifetime, not your grandkid's lifetime, not your great grand. If y'all couldn't do it with Randy Johnson and Ken Griffey Jr., just it ain't happening. I need to dream all you want, hope all you want, wish all you want, build all your stadium, but it ain't happening. So to us, the word hope is pie in the sky. It's a great dream. It's fantasy. That's us, us hope, but hope in the Bible is not that. I hope in the Bible is sure. I hope in the Bible is steadfast. When the Bible says the coming of Jesus is our blessed hope, that doesn't mean tonight we say, you know, I hope he comes, but I know he isn't, but I wish he would, but he isn't. But, oh, no. No, that, that means that no doubt he's coming. The only question is, is it tonight? I mean, are we going to see tomorrow? Or are we not going to see tomorrow? He's coming. The only question is when. I hope in the Bible is something settled and sure. So when the Bible says faith is the substance, there is something I can hold in my hands that tells me about what I'm hoping for. That's not all. The next phrase says it is the evidence. Hold it again. Now, you're not going to walk into a courtroom this week and the honor is going to say, uh, well, I want to know what, what evidence do you have for this trial? Your honor, i got a feeling about this. Your honor, i got an experience. Your honor, I think I had an encounter. Your honor is going to say, get out of here. 
Because your honor doesn't want feelings and he doesn't want mystical experiences. Your honor wants evidence. Your honor wants testimony. So the Bible tells us there is something, a substance that I can touch and hold and is going to tell me about the wonderful things I'm hoping for. There is a something that I can touch and hold that is absolute evidence that stands up in God's courtroom that is going to tell me about those things that I haven't seen yet. In case you haven't figured it out, faith means that I have complete confidence in the Word of God. Amen. Right here that I have got my complete trust in what the Bible says. Not pie in the sky. No, I can read it for myself. Not, well, this is what my heart tells me. No, this is what the Bible says. Well, this is what the Lord laid on my heart. What would we ever do if there was like a whole chapter in the Bible where God condemned ministers who preached what was laid on their heart? Sure. I know where it is. Yeah. Find it for yourself. <laughs> I mean, what if there was like a whole chapter? Is that, you mean ministers aren't supposed to speak what's laid on their heart? Oh, no. That's not in the Bible. Huh? It's not in the Bible. What is in the Bible is something that sounds like this. The heart is deceitful above all. That's why you wake who can know it. I guess that's why we're not supposed to speak what's on our heart, huh? That's right. Say, well, well, if you don't speak what's on your heart, what do you do? Like, preach the word. Yeah. It kind of worked a little earlier tonight, didn't it? A little more Bible, a little more Bible, a little more salt, a little more Bible. It kind of worked pretty good, didn't it? This verse by verse Bible thing. And the Bible tells us that faith is this book that I can hold in my hand. And I don't need a scholar, doctor, reverend, rabbi, or priest. I just read it for myself. And with the spirit of God in my heart and a BA degree, a born-again degree, I've got everything I need to know the Word of God. And I can grab this book and read this book and study this book. And this book is going to tell me about the things I'm hoping for. This book is going to be evidence of things that I have never seen yet. And that's why as you make your way through Hebrews 11, it may be somebody like Abel offering a more sacrifice. It may be the man Enoch who walks with God. It may be Abraham who looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. It could be Isaac. It could be Jacob. It could be Sarah. It could be Amram and Jochebed. Maybe Moses or Rahab. But one by one, the thing that ties these people together is there was a moment in time when they had to trust the word of God. They had to step out believing the word of God. Just like Noah, I've never seen it rain. That's like Noah say, I've never heard of these fountains of the deep. But if God said it's coming, and if God says the judgment day is approaching, then Noah said, I'm going to believe the word of God and Amen. I'm going to act on the word of God. How do you save your family, Noah? Amen. Noah's preaching so loud we can hear him 4,500 years later. He's saying, Dad, you've got to know your Bible, study your Bible, believe your Bible, stand on your Bible, practice your Bible. You've got to memorize your Bible. You've got to teach your Bible to your family. You're going to have to make that Bible awfully big in your home. He said, well, you know, there's a whole lot of things I don't understand in the Bible. Really? You mean you don't understand all the Bible? What's your problem? If you don't understand all the Bible, do you know what that means? Join a club is what that means. But what you do need to do is sit in front of your children or your grandchildren and say, I don't get it all, but I sure love it all. Amen. And I want you to love it too. And so we're going to read a few verses in this book and ask God to help us understand the Bible. A dad has got to build his home, his marriage, his business, his personal life on thus saith the Lord. Amen. Hey, Noah, you've been up there now for 18 years, man. That's a long time to work on anything. Where we come from, if you do the same job for 18 days, you're an American hero. <laughs> and you've been doing this for 18 years, Noah. Hey, Noah, what are you doing up there anyhow? You're building a boat? Noah Howler so loud we can hear him clearly tonight. No, 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 no. I'm not here to build a boat. I'm here to save my family. Amen. How do you do that, Noah? Number one, you believe God. Or I keep going in verse number seven. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, here's number two. It says he moved with fear. That phrase, move with fear, is a word in the New Testament that refers to a very specific kind of fear. This is not a general fear. I mean, if you think it through, right, Noah had a lot to be afraid of. Noah had never seen water come down from the sky. And, and you know, this is not such a big deal you all here, but i got to tell you, that would be terrorizing if you'd never seen that happen. And Noah, nobody knew about the fountains of the deep. And, 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 and by the way, this is kind of a killer here, you know. 
And, and if you ever have a chance to get your family to Cincinnati, Ohio, and get to the create to the ark, absolutely 100% recommended. Wonderful. I know it's a long way from here, but uh, that's powerful. And they have the Creation Science Museum there as well. And this is kind of a killer because I hate it when like truth gets in the way of a good sermon illustration. <laughs> <laughs> some of the best ones, and I, I'm not the only guy here tonight. You know, some of you preachers can confess your sin right along with me. There are a lot of us that we had, you know, that water rising and those people scratching on that ark and that water's up to here. Hey, no, that man. There's a lot of scratches, you know, on that ark that we've been preaching about for years. And, and they explained to Cincinnati, most likely when the fountains of the deep broke, there were tidal waves that circled the earth in a matter of seconds and moments. And that means not enough time to get to the ark and hit the door and scratch on it. Which means one of the best sermon illustrations of all time is gone. Who needs scientists? There was a lot of things to be afraid of. Noah had never seen water come down from the sky. And Noah, the wave, well, I'll tell you, that's something to be afraid of. The water, the wave. How about the wind? You know, that's when the ride really started, when the Lord tried the earth. And I'll tell you, there were a lot of things for Noah to panic about. There were a lot of things for Noah to be afraid of. But in verse number 7, when it says he moved with fear, it's very specific here. Noah was not afraid of the water. Noah was not afraid of the wind. Noah was not afraid of the wave. Noah feared God. That's what that word means. That's right. He feared God. How do you save your family? The old preacher says, well, you believe your Bible, and number two, you fear the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is another one of these phrases. It's kind of like faith, you know? You know it when you see it. And I remember when I was a kid, preacher just starting out, this like decades ago now, and, and for half of the time we've been on the road, we lived in a travel trailer. So my wife and three kids, you know, 320 square feet, and that big travel trailer to go on vacation, not to live in, you know, 365 days a year. But we were all over the place in this thing. And, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of space if you're living in a fifth wheel. So uh, I have my little deal in my little corner and my little desk. And, 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 you know, I'm studying the text. I don't even remember where it was. And the fear of the Lord came up. And, and I wanted to get a good theological definition of the fear of God. You see, when a guy's called to preach and he goes to a Bible school, whatever the routine is, the first book you buy as a preacher is a book called Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. It's about this big, about that wide, and about that thick. Do you know why you buy this? Because when you put it up on a shelf in your office, it makes you look really <laughs> That's why you buy it. There's another book. It's the second one you buy. It's a good theological dictionary. Nobody ever opens it. Because if you did what you would discover it, the font size is like 1.2. You need the Hubble, the Hubble telescope to read this. But this was that's where I needed a theological definition of the fear of God. So down comes a theological dictionary. Every light in the trailer is turned on. I got my kid's toy microscope out. And now I'm focusing in. I got my notepad. I got my pen. I found the right page. I don't know how, but I found the right page. I found the right edge. I, I'm going to find out how the seminary professors, ah, they're going to describe the fear of the Lord. I am ready. My pen is ready. My notepad is ready. And this is what I read. The fear of the Lord. Is an awesome respect for God. Amen. Okay. I could have come up with that one on my own. What <laughs> <laughs> I need that for? And you know, honestly, for the longest time, I mean, not like every day, you know, but you know how something sticks in the back of your mind and one day I'm going to get an answer for this. And, and I never had a good definition of the fear of God. I get close. You know, people preach about it. Everybody talks about it. But what exactly is it? And, and for the longest time, you know, I never really did it until one day I, I was reading a book. And as I was reading this book, I didn't come across a good definition of the fear of God. I didn't even come across a great definition. I came across the Definition of the fear of God. It's going to surprise you. The book I was reading, you never would guess, it's called The Bible. <laughs> Who would have ever thought to look there? You know? and I'm reading the book of Ecclesiastes. This isn't going well. 
Solomon and I, we're not getting along real well. Yeah, I don't know how you do when you read the Bible, but I just get real personal. I really do. I slow it down, and, and I'll start yelling at somebody. I'll start yelling at me. It's all good. And, hey, I grew up in the Northeast. You can do this kind of stuff. And, and I'm yelling at Solomon, because I mentioned last night, a thousand mother-in-laws. This guy's not so smart. You know? and, I mean, for one guy who's so smart, he was really dumb. And, and I'm yelling at him, and he's yelling at me. And we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, and, and there's Solomon saying, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So I start yelling at Solomon, yeah, what does it mean to fear God? And the Spirit says, let's well, just read the next verse. Yeah. What do you know? There it is. Yeah. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. That's the fear of God. When I wake up tomorrow morning and the thought is in my mind and my heart that God is watching me today, that's the fear of God. When I know it doesn't matter if my wife hears me or not. It doesn't matter if my, uh, my pastor hears me or no. It doesn't matter if the boss is watching, my parents are watching or not. No, everywhere I go, everything I do, everything I say, forget that. Everything that comes into my mind, Hebrews 11, absolutely everything is known by him. When I am living with the constant recognition, the Lord my God seeth me. That's the fear of God. So Noah, how do you save your family? I don't know, maybe start singing that little kid song. Well, be careful, little feet, where you go. Well, be careful, little hands, what you do. For the Father up above is looking down in his wonderful love, so be careful, big mouth, what you say. The Lord seeth me. Right. Hey, Noah, how do you save your family? An old preacher writes us this on the top of that ark. And, hey, Noah, come on, man. You're up there now for 38 years. What are you doing up there, Noah? You're building a belt? And old Noah hollers down from the top of this thing, No, no, no. I am not here to build a belt. I am not here to get famous. I'm not here to be a star of a movie. What are you doing, Noah? Save your family. How do you do this, Noah? Well, number one, you trust your Bible, know your Bible, love your Bible. And, and number two, as much as you fear your boss or as much as you fear your neighbor or as much as you fear the police officer or as much as you fear your mother-in-law, <laughs> you just make sure you fear the Lord the more. Because the one you fear the most is the one who wins. You believe your Bible, you fear God. Hey, Noah, keep going. So he does. By faith, Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, move with fear. Look at this, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Noah said, you want to save your family. Number one, you believe your Bible. Number two, you fear the Lord. Number three, you want to save your family no matter how long it takes. And it took 120 years, the best years of the man's life. And no matter how much it costs. And I'm not exactly sure what the final price tag was, but I do believe it cost Noah Whatever it costs, however long it takes, however much energy you need, you do what you have to do to prepare an ark and save your family. Now, I do have a theory about this. My theory is that as Noah was coming to the end of the ark, that's probably when he started filling out the credit card applications. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll pay you next week. You, let's get a nice one out next month. Yeah, one more month there. All right, all right. There was a Jewish rabbi, a Catholic priest, and a Baptist preacher. They were in a hospital visiting a dying guy. And the guy says, I know I can't take it with me, but I'm going to try anyhow. So he handed that Jewish rabbi, that Baptist preacher, and that Catholic priest a bag. And each one of the bags, $25,000 cash. He said, I want to take it with me. So when I die, I want you three to put this in the casket. The guy died at the funeral just before they closed the casket. This Baptist preacher walks up, puts a bag in there. This Catholic priest walks up, puts a brown bag in there. This uh, Jewish rabbi walks up, they put a brown bag in there. They close the lid, they bury the guy. Three weeks later, these three men get together. The Jewish rabbi says, I've got to tell somebody. There's only $10,000 cash in my bag. I kept fifteen for myself. The Catholic priest said, I did the same thing. I kept money for myself. Brother House said, Ah, I mean the Baptist preacher said. <laughs> I'll have you know that when I put that bag in that casket, in that bag was my personal check for $25. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. 
much did it cost for this project? Let's just say I kept Home Depot in business. <laughs> to build that ark, it cost an incredible amount of money. It cost an incredible amount of time. It cost an incredible amount of energy. It cost them everything. So, you know, in the spring, your pastor's going to say, Let's take the kids to camp. <laughs> All right. What's, what's good about camp, Pastor? Well, a good camp is anywhere where there's no cell phone reception. <laughs> That's why this place is really good. <laughs> That's where a good camp is because when the cell phones don't work, then it's amazing how the Spirit of God can. Right. And it's kind of like what the Lord does for you here, for yeah. me here. Right. You know, when you just get a day with four preaching services, it, well, you get kids, you know, that, I mean, different than you and me. They actually listen, you know. <laughs> It's amazing, six preaching services a day, what the Lord can do over four or five days. It's amazing what the Lord can do. And that's where a good camp is, and that's why a camp is important. You say, well, that sounds good. I'd like for my son, my daughter, my grandchild to go to camp. How much does it cost, Pastor? And the next thing you know, Brother Reno, they're giving CPR. <laughs> Pastor, I don't want to buy the camp. We just want to go for four <laughs> You know, there are a lot of reasons why, not the least as liability, but, you know, camps like this, they're very expensive to, they, to operate. I mean, it's not what it looks like. It's very expensive. Right. It's just as much as the government hates churches and the government hates Christian schools and the government hates people homeschooling their kids. Yeah. They hate Christian camps. Yeah, right. they, they do. They just do. Yeah. It's expensive. And you start thinking, you know, wow. I mean, I'd like for my grandson, my granddaughter, my boy, my girl to go to camp, but, but you know, we're going to do this, and we got this project, and my wife and I were kind of going to do this, and it's going to cost a lot to save your family. Yeah, that's right. And there's going to be some hunting trips you don't get to take. Yeah. There's going to be some fishing trips that get postponed for a while. There's going to be some weekends with your wife, maybe, they're going to have to be, you're going to have to wait 20 years for this. This might happen like that. Because there's going to be a bigger priority than the Seahawks, and a bigger priority than the Elk this year, a bigger priority than fun and games. And that bigger priority is doing whatever it costs, whatever it takes to save my family. See, Jesus said, where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. And I'm really pretty certain that we all know what we love the most, but if we don't, if we don't, that's okay. The answer is... Go home and open your checkbook. Yes, and it will tell you exactly what the biggest thing in your life is. Mm-hmm. And to save a family, it's going to cost everything. But I wonder when the Lord said, come thou, Noah. What an invitation, by the way. God didn't point and say, go. He said, come, I'm here. Yeah. Come thou, Noah. And you know, he also said, and thy house. And young people, it's fascinating because if you read it two times in Genesis 7, the Bible goes out of his way to say, and Shem, and Ham, and Japheth. Mm-hmm. You, you know, the English teacher would say, you don't need to keep saying and, and, and. But, but the English teacher would also say when you're reading in a text like the Bible, and you see the word and repeated, there's a, a real long, fancy word for that. But I tell you what it is, but I can't pronounce it. <laughs> but what it is, it's a literary way to notice this. Yeah. Because you and I reading lists are prone to slide through the list. But God says, no, no, no. It was Shem made his choice. And Ham made his choice. And Japheth made his choice. Those boys had to decide to obey their God just like Noah had. And I got to tell you, when the wind started to blow and the rain started to fall and the wave came rolling through, Noah looked around and there's his three sons and his wife. And his daughter-in-law. He didn't miss that hunting trip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, y'all. 62 years up there, man. That's a long, long time. So what are you doing anyway? No, what do you want to have them make a movie about yourself? What are you doing? Are you building a boat? And old Noah says, no, 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 no. No, you heard I built a boat. You thought I built a boat, but I am not here to build a boat. 
then what are you doing if you're not building a boat? Noah said, I'm saving my family. It's the only hope for my family. How do you save your family? You believe your Bible. How do you save your family? You fear the Lord. How do you save your family? No matter what it takes, no matter what it costs, no matter how long it takes, you do what you've got to do to save your family. Amen. How do you save your family? And Noah says, okay, up until now it's been easy. <laughs> this is where it gets hard. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world. You know that word condemned? There are other verses in the New Testament where the same word, do you know how it reads in our Bible? It reads as probably the strongest word in the English language. You wouldn't know it's such a strong word because wicked people use it all the time. But it's the word damnation. You see what Noah's saying? You cannot save your family unless you condemn the world. Unless, and Noah did that by building the boat. Two things happened. Number one, he saved his family, but number two, he condemned the world. And he didn't just condemn the world to a watery grave. He condemned the world to eternity in hell. In other words, if we could somehow go back in time and say, you know, Noah, where I come from, and I remember years ago, you don't hear much about this anymore, but... But I remember a few decades ago, anyhow, some of the gray-haired grandparent preachers remember this. There was a very popular movement in America. And I don't mean to criticize because there's good guys, really good guys. And they invested their ministries. It was called God Save America. I know we've been up here for, you know, two days. And you may have missed the news today. God didn't save America. But the problem is, sometimes when we get so worked up about saving the country, we get by our family. That's right. That's right. No, if you've got to choose between saving the world or saving your children, he made his choices right there in that verse. Yes. He said, if, if it means I have to condemn the world to hell, I'll do that. I don't want to, but if that's what it takes, the invitation is going to be given. Come, come, come. But if nobody wants to come, it doesn't matter because my family is more important than anything else. Yes. That's right. Amen. So if I have to condemn the world to a watery grave and eternal hell to save my family, he made his choice. And what's our attitude tonight? All around America, let's just see if we can't take the Bible and marry it to the world. Where did this come from? The Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. The Bible says, if you would love the world, the world, the world would love his own, but because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hated you. Now, the Bible says, you adulterers and adulterers says, no, you're not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be the friend of the world is the enemy of God. So we don't have to go on a war path. We don't have to scream and holler and yell and burn stuff down. All we got to do is follow the Bible and this world's not going to like it. Amen. And we can't build the church by being a friend of the world and the friend of God. And we can't build a Christian family by letting the world tell us how to do it. Not going to happen. So let me ask you. Your children or your grandchildren when they come over the house, who's teaching them morals? Mm -hmm. yeah. You in the Bible or Harvey Weinstein? Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. Because right. no, no, all of a sudden now it's right there. What we Baptist preachers have been preaching, screaming about, Come on, and some people right. sitting there laughing about it. And, and you know, and I've heard more than enough one Baptist preacher, not Baptist, a couple others too, that kind of going around bragging how they're really cool because uh, I know about Hollywood movies. And, oh, I'm really a fan of TV shows. You can like me because I'm a cool preacher. Come on, preach it. Okay, how's that working out now? Yeah. Yeah, because all of a sudden in living color, not that we should have needed it, we needed it because we should have had enough discernment to listen to our pastors who've been screaming about the Hollywood culture now for decades. Yeah. Now we don't have to scream anymore. Yeah. Does that have to ask the question? In your house, my house, last week, who got more airtime? Jesus or Harvey Weinstein? Hey, no, who right. did? Hey. Who did? As simple as that. Because the Harvey Weinstein people, if you haven't caught the news this week, pretty much their crowd permeates everything in Hollywood. Yeah. And not only everything in Hollywood, it appears that it permeates everything in the Senate. And it permeates everything in Washington. And it pretty much permeates everything in America. You can smell it from here. That's right. 
So who gets more airtime? Who's you, your kids? Where are they getting it from? I said, well, you know, since my girls watching these power women of Hollywood, oh, they're really impressive. Yeah, 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 yeah they're really impressive. Yeah, my life is so cheap and my body is so cheap that if it means I got to pro prostitute my body to get a job, I'll do it. Boy, that's a great role model for your grandfather. That's right. There are no heroes here. And the victims are not these wicked men, obviously. These victims are not these wicked prostituted women either. Yeah, the victims are our children. Yeah, yeah. Right, so you're going to have to make a choice because yeah. it's what Noah's saying. You've got to condemn the world. So you just can't sit there and say, well, we have Sunday school for 45 minutes, of course. Of course, you know, the first 15 minutes is Starbucks, and then the uh, you know, next 10 minutes is Danish or Dunkin' Donuts or something. And then we've got a couple minutes. Hey! We'll throw the Bible here a little bit. And, you know, then your course is Wednesday night. <laughs> Uh, but I've got Sunday night. No, we don't do that. Come on, no, no, no. Come on. And we've got 45 minutes on Sunday night. Well, that's kind of been watered down to like 22 and a half minutes. <laughs> By the time we're done sipping our Starbucks, canceling services, Come on. we got about 22 and a half minutes of the same thing every Sunday. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Great. So it's 22 and a half minutes of the same old, same old versus... Five hours a day of Harvey Weinstein. Right. Mm -hmm. Who is teaching your children morals? That's right. Yeah. Who is teaching your grandchildren morals when they come over to your house? Yeah. And if that TV is on, it's Harvey Weinstein's crap. That's right. That's who's teaching it. No, it's all such a beautiful thing. Not that we needed it, but we have been vindicated. No, preachers have been preaching against Hollywood and its culture That's for right. years. Right. Amen. Everybody knows it is a massive sore. He's going to teach our children morals. Right. In your house, more Bible or more Harvey Weinstein? Good. Good. Noah said if you want to save your family, you're going to have to condemn Harvey Weinstein. We're trying. You're going to have to condemn Hollywood. You're going to say, I'm sorry, these TV shows, you're not going to come into my house and teach my children how to curse and use God's name in there. You're not going to come into my house and teach my teenagers that you're supposed to live together before you get married. You're not going to come into my house and explain what they said this week. 77% of the college degree Democrats can't figure out whether you're born a boy or a girl. You're not going to come and confuse my kids. You're not going to come, Mr. Weinstein, into this house and teach that you can marry a boy or marry a girl, it doesn't matter. You're not going to come into my house and with your filthiness, with your wickedness. You're not going to come into my house and you're just not going to do it. So you're just going to have to take the thing and say, no, get out of here. And say, all TV bad, uh, you know, half the Andy Griffith shows are pretty good, probably. <laughs> you're going to have to stand against the world. This is not a popularity contest here. If I start cleaning up the TV, too. My kids aren't going to like it. Yeah, right. right. Of course they're not. Of course they're not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the computer and I'm going to tell them you can't play these games. That's right. Yeah. Amen. Well, they're yeah. not going to like it. No, but Harvey Weinstein's crowd makes video games too. Yeah, and they make all these games and all this violence. And, and I love these people walking around saying, well, you know, we're not going to institutionalize mentally unbalanced people. And, and now, you know, this kid spends his entire life playing games where he's blowing stuff up and killing people. And, and now this guy all of a sudden takes a gun and walks into Las Vegas or walks into some little church and says, we don't understand. Really? Yeah, that's right, Bruce. Really? Stay with it. Uh, so just go ahead and just take your remote control uh, when you go home tomorrow night. And from about 8 o'clock to 8.05, you ought to be able to get through, you know, maybe 100 channels. And you'll know exactly why they do what they do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not everybody does that, but you know why the mentally imbalanced will. It's what they're surrounded with hour after hour. Like, what are we, what are we, what are we, what are we that stupid? Yeah. We're living in a culture, yeah. a culture, which means a way of the world. Where people hour after hour feed upon immorality. Mm -hmm. Hour after hour you can do whatever you want with your body. Hour after hour you can have all the affairs you want. Hour after hour you can do whatever you want and nobody will know. Hour after hour where nobody's held accountable. And, and then when people start acting like they have been taught. Right. We get surprised. Yeah. And what, CNN gets offended? Yeah, come on. What? Condemn the world. Mm -hmm. 
You can't save your family if you're going to let the world come into the living room and teach your kids Harvey Weinstein's rules. Right. Right. Sorry, but you, you just can't. You're going to take your kids and you're going to go to a public movie theater and you're just going to sit there. And, and whether it's the little screen at home, which is a little and more, the big screen up there. So movies and preaching against movies and preaching against Hollywood, exactly. Amen. I don't know why we stop because we're supposed to condemn the world. That's right. It's like That's right, right there. Yeah. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. That's right. They even go to the movies. Really? So they can use God's name in vain and what, the big screen now? Yeah. With surround sound? Yeah. Really? Noah said, you want to save your family. You're never going to do this with a popularity contest. That's right. That's right. You're just going to have to stand up and say, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. And Amen. this TV shows and these movies and these videos and these books and this literature and these games are not going to be in this house. Amen. 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 And it's case closed. And you don't have to scream and you don't have to yell and you don't have to burn the house down. <laughs> just like we heard earlier tonight. That's it. This is what we're going to do. You'd be surprised how much your wife probably is going to want to go along. <laughs> hey Noah you've been up there for 78 years man that's a lifetime to us 78 years so what are you doing up there Noah you're building a boat and the man hollers so loud we can hear him 4500 years later no 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 don't you let somebody tell you I built a boat that's not what the book says I am not here to build a boat. I'm here to save my family. Amen. How do you save your family, Noah? You believe your Bible. You fear the Lord. However long it takes, whatever it costs, however much energy you got, you do what you got to do to build an ark to save your family. He says you're going to have to condemn the world. This no popularity contest. And one more thing. It's beautiful. He became heir of, and notice this is a really big word in the Bible. Big word. Mm -hmm. Usually to us, the isn't, but here it really is. He didn't become heir of righteousness. He became an heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Amen. Amen. You know what that means? It means that when Noah believed God to the saving of his house, and Noah accepted the invitation of God, come thou and all thy house into the ark, it tells us Noah had a bigger picture here. And, and it wasn't just we need to be saved from the flood, and we need to be saved from the wave, and we need to be saved from the wind. And certainly it's part of it, but it's something bigger here. No, he didn't just become an heir uh, of the world or become heir of riches. He became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. That's right. Amen. That's right. See, We'll tell people, you need to be saved. Just the other night, I chanced to lead a guy to the Lord. Wonderful guy. You talk about low-hanging fruit. This guy had it, man. He was ready. And, you know, it's a beautiful thing. Because we'll tell the sinner, well, you know, we've sinned. And we've sinned tens and hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of times. And now here's this register with sin after sin after sin after sin. We, we, we can't even number them. And if God numbered them, not one of us would stand for a second. And, and why our sins are so many. We can't go to heaven with our sins. And, and you know, we'll preach and we'll tell every one of those sins have to be washed away. Of course they do. And what can wash away my sin? First John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Amen. Every Praise sin God. is washed away by the blood of Christ. See, here's the front we oftentimes don't talk about. See, number one, here's this register, right? You got one, I've got one. And it's got every sin we've ever done, and we cannot go to heaven until number one, every one of our sins are gone. The blood of Christ. But the problem is, after the blood of Jesus washes our sins away, do you know what we have? You got a blank register, and you can't go to heaven with a blank register. See, you can't go to heaven until there's righteousness on the register. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, well, from the beginning, we don't have any righteousness. Yeah. And even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So when some self-righteous person says, I'll be good enough for heaven, all that does is just make the sin account get higher and higher. Yeah, right. <laughs> so our sins are washed away. That's only half the thing. We can't go to heaven until God can look at the register and, and there's not sin. That's gone now by the blood of Christ, but there has to be righteousness. And I don't have any righteousness. You don't have any righteousness. And your pastor doesn't have any righteousness. We're in big trouble again now. Our sins are washed away, but we got to have righteousness on the account. And here's the beautiful thing. When somebody is saved, the Bible word is impute. Yeah, right. You know what happens to that register? Imputed or put on the account is, get this word, the 
righteousness of Christ. Right. See, once there was a register with my tens of hundreds of thousands of sins, they're gone in the blood of Christ and in the place of my sins, the grace and mercies of God have put in there the righteousness of Christ. Amen. When he looks at my register, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And while my righteousness won't get it done, the righteousness Amen. of Christ. Amen. Amen. You see what Hebrews 11, 7 says? It says that 2,500 years before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem, the Bible tells us Noah realized that my sons and my wife and my daughters-in-law and I, we need to be an heir of not righteousness, the righteousness. We need the blood of Jesus Christ to wash our sins away and the righteousness of Jesus on our... I will promise you, and I can't explain it, just like Brother Hardy couldn't get it either because we don't know for sure, but I will tell you one thing. These people knew a lot more about Christ and Calvary and salvation than we think they did. And I can prove that because one of those wonderful little things about old Abraham in Genesis 22 is the Bible tells us that Abraham from Mount Moriah looked ahead to Calvary. He rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. That's what happened in Genesis 22. These guys understood a lot more than we think they did. Yes. Yes. You know why Noah went to heaven? Not because he built an ark. That's right. Because the righteousness of Christ was on his account. You know why I'm going to heaven? You know why your pastor's going to heaven? You know how you can go to heaven? When every one of our sins are washed away by the precious blood. And in the place of our sins on that account is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You say, how can I have the righteousness of Jesus? How can I have my sins washed away? For by grace you'll never Are you saved through faith? You believe the word of God. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Not of religion. Not by a church. Not by baptism. Not by good works. Not by prayers. Not by walking down an aisle. Not by saying anything. Oh no, no, no. No, I'll never. You'll never. No one. Not no. Will ever go to heaven because they build an ark. Yeah. The That's only right. way to be saved is our sins washed away by right. perfect righteousness. Of it. Yes, sir. Amen. So, you go home Sunday and the grandkids come over. And that little grand boy that you love more than life is sitting yes. on your knee. And with his big trusting eyes, he looks up and says, Grandpa, how can I go to heaven? <laughs> You want to save your family, this is the bottom line, isn't it? This is like number one. You have to teach your kids how they can know the righteousness of Christ. Boys and girls and granders. You know, we love those pictures where the little kid gets lost in their parents' closet. It's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, the kid gets in his daddy's wingtips, you know, his mom, the, kid, the girl gets in mama's high heels, and, and, you know, she steals the pearls and puts them around her neck, and, and a little guy throws his daddy's tie, the phony tie, because he doesn't know how to tie one around his neck. And, <laughs> and they make great pictures, don't they? And they do. Those pictures are scarce to death. Yeah. Those are some little boys and some little girls and some little grandchildren that are following some steps, and our steps will either lead them to Jesus. That's right. Or lead them to hell. That's right. Noah said, you want to save your family, you better tell your children and show them how they can be an heir of the righteousness. Amen. 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 two years, Noah. That's a long time. Hey, what are you doing up there, Noah? You're building the boat? Noah hollers so loud, man. We can hear him loud and clear tonight. No, no, no. You thought I built the boat. You heard that. I am not here to build the boat. I am not here to make a movie. I am not here to get famous. Then Noah, what are you doing? And Noah says, I'm here to save my family. That's what I'm doing here. I'm saving my boys. I'm saving my daughters. I'm saving my wife. How do you save your family? And Noah says, you believe your Bible. How do you save your family? You fear the Lord. How do you save your family? doesn't matter what the price tag is. You do what you got to do to build that ark. How do you save your family? You'll never save your family until you're willing to condemn this whole world. Right. Right. How are you going to save your family? Bring them to count. Amen. I've got to save my family. Amen. Years ago in the Sand Hills of Nebraska, there was an old rancher named George Hatch. George Hatch loved the Lord. Twelve children. It was Sunday morning. George Hatch and his 12 kids were walking out of the house. They all had their little Bibles. and They're getting in the vehicle ready to go to church. And the neighbor drove up in his pickup truck, dust everywhere. He jumped out of the truck. He pointed to the western sky. George, he said, I just heard the weather. We got a big storm coming in. 
big store. He said, George, there's only one. He pointed to the property, and George had said, hay everywhere. He said, George, I've come over here to help you put the hay in the barn. We're going to have to do this right now. The big storm's coming in. And George, if you don't get the hay in the barn, you're going to lose a little kind of money this morning. And George Hatch looked at the western sky. You didn't even have to be a meteorologist to know the cloud clouds were right. He looked at all the hay, and he realized that that storm comes, and I'm in church. I'm going to lose a lot of money. And he turned to his neighbor. That's what he said. He said, you don't know how much it means to me that you would actually come over here this morning. You're a great neighbor. Thank you, thank you. But then he said, this is Sunday morning. And on Sunday morning, we don't put the hay in the barn. On Sunday morning, we go to church. And the neighbor said, George, you seem to understand. Because that storm is not waiting for your pastor to get done in church. But then again, not a lot of things do, do they? <laughs> All right, there was a little boy and his mother, and they were sitting in the service, and the pastor was into the 11th inning. And the little guy looked up and said, Mom, Mom, up there on the platform, that flag with all the stars on it, what's that flag for? He said, Son, that flag honors people who died in the service. <laughs> Did they die in the morning service or the evening service? <laughs> That storm ain't going to wait for your pastor. George has said, you have no idea how thankful I am to have a neighbor. That means so much to me. But on Sunday morning, we don't put the hay in the barn. We go to church. Yeah. Neighbor got in his truck. Crazy, crazy guy shaking his head. George said to his wife, I don't think you understand. Sure enough, they're sitting in church, little old building, tin roof. And in the middle of the message, the heavens opened up. And when George Hatch got home, he had a mess. Just a mess. <coughs> He's just standing there kind of looking at this huge mess all over his property, wondering, what am I going to do now? And the neighbor drove up, and the same guy now, and he, he got out of the truck, and he, you know how farmers and ranchers do it, you know, kind of just sat there for a while, kind of stood there and looked at it all, you know, like you do. And then finally the guy said, I told you, George. I told you it's going to happen. He said, George, you, you have no idea how much money you lost today. And George said, you're right. You're right. This is what he said. This morning, I lost my hay. But, this morning, I saved my family. Amen. <laughs> True story. Amen. Happened decades ago. George Hatch and his wife are in heaven. But children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren to this very day are serving the Lord Amen. around the world. Yeah. And it all went back to a Sunday morning where George Hatch thought he'd rather save his family than save his hay. Amen. So no 115 years of this. What are you doing, man? You fell on a boat? No, 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 no. I am not here to build a boat. I'm here to save my family. Amen. Father in heaven, I pray that even now you will work it off our in our lives. For our boys and our girls, for our grandsons and our granddaughters. Maybe for somebody, for great-grandchildren, I pray that right now in this place, in the quietness of this time, that like Abraham of old, you would help us determine that we are going to be salt. That as hard as it might be, as unpopular as it might be, as lonely as it might be, may we join Noah, may we join Abraham, may we determine to stand for what is right in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. I pray that tonight changes would be made in our hearts so we can save our family. Let's stand together, heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. We're going to play that invitation song. If God is speaking to your heart, right here in the front, right where you are, I'd like to invite you to fall on your knees tonight and say as a dad, as a grandfather, hey, maybe as a great-grandfather, whatever it takes, whatever it costs, Lord, give me wisdom. I've got to get the Bible put it in the hearts of my family. I'm going to have to take my stand for Christ and fear the Lord. And oh, no matter what it takes, no matter what it costs, Lord, help me. Help me to be willing to pay that price. And, and Lord, that you might use me to stand against this pagan world. And, and more than anything, tonight would be a good night to pray for boys and girls and grandsons and granddaughters that need to be saved. Because we've got to save our family.